Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Kevin Starr, MD, and guest host Steve Heilig. Today's conversation is titled Hippocratic Philanthropy Helping the Poorest Around the Globe. Thank you all for joining us today for this ongoing series of talks most of which are esoteric to somebody, and this one will be included. We have a wide variety of thing, of topics and speakers, of course, uh, and we're just glad that people can show up. We do record them for uh, podcasting if people want to hear them later or to share them with others. And so today, I'm pleased to do this because um, our speaker is an old friend of mine for what I just realized, thinking last night, 25 years now, actually, which is kind of shocking. And uh, he actually meets here with a group of fellows from around the country and around the world every year. And they do a very intensive training on how to actually do work that helps the poorest people in the uh, world. So they are here this week, so I figured since he was going to be here, we'd take advantage and take him out of that room over Pacific House over there and have an uh, informal but serious conversation about the work that he does and how he sees all of uh, some of the issues surrounding it, because it's a very complex world. We're talking, in a sense, about, in the broadest sense, about foreign aid, in a way, uh, which is a phenomena of the last century or so as the uh, Western world became affluent and started seeing that they needed to, or wanted to help out or at least influence things in the developing world. And after World War II, in particular with the Marshall Plan and things like that, there was vast amounts or or increased in amounts in resources devoted to trying to make things better in other parts of the world. And of course, with by the time after that had been going on for a couple of decades, there is controversy about it. And it's, it's interesting. It's one of these topics that you get attacked uh, or the, the concept of foreign aid is attacked on, from both the left and the right. Uh, there's a, a lot of literature from the left saying that this is another form of imperialism to influence the world uh, from the right, that this is a waste of resources and uh, we should encourage people to take care of themselves. I believe that the total budget uh, or percentage of our national budget that we devote to foreign aid at this point is still less than 1%. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. We're not talking about it. People think that we're giving away, you know, half of our money, but it's it's uh, in the big scheme, it's not that much. But it still amounts to a lot of money. And the sector that has really come up to take a lot of this on and and uh, increase it is the private world, foundations and non-governmental organizations or NGOs. And there is again a very uh, serious debate about the utility of this, how well it works uh, in various places, with the arguments being that it's again, could be wasteful, that it is diverted by corruption in other countries, that it can even make things worse by making people dependent so you can never really stop, um, and and so on and so forth. A lot of critiques. And uh, from my understanding of Kevin's work, he has not delved into that so much, although he spent a lot of time thinking about it and a little bit of writing about it, but he's mainly focused his work and the work of the foundation and fellows that he works with on how to develop and support efforts that are really measurable and that work. But we're going to start actually a little more with how he got into this. Now, so I was digging around in my files, and uh, 20-something years ago, I was editor of a esteemed journal called Surfing Medicine. It was the the best surfing medicine journal in the world. (laughs) 
and, and also the only one. Um, but Kevin wrote in, the, I think, the first issue that I uh, worked on, Confessions of a Slow Learner, Rethinking Village Medicine. And he, in this, you tell the story of being a kid. The first thing you saw on TV, you said, was the famine in Biafra, and that you had a grandfather who was, thank you, who was a, we're just starting, so you're good, who was a medical missionary, actually. So this is something, somewhat in your, uh, your genes or your tradition, and that when you went off to, at, in college, you actually took a first trip over and you were in Thailand and Cambodia, yep. right? And you rolled their truck and was sent back home, right? Yep. Yeah. He, st <laughs> he still drives that way, but he went into emergency. Me he went into medicine and emergency medicine, and then there you met someone who very much influenced you on this path that you're on, friend. Right so, can you tell us a little bit about him? So, I was starting a project in the mountains of Peru, and I was at UCF, UCSF Medical School, and everybody at the medical school said you need to talk to this guy first. And I was introduced to this guy, Reiner Arnhold, and Reiner at the time was in his 60s, and he was a pediatrician who'd worked in all the major humanitarian crises of the 60s and 70s, a lot around child survival and post-famine settings, so learning how to feed a lot of kids rapidly in the best way so that you did a lot more good than harm. So Reiner, uh, Reiner helped me plan a medical education project and then became a mentor and, and good friend and really my teacher in, in thinking about uh, delivering health in these, these kinds of settings. And, what? and so uh, Reiner, uh, we took our first trip together to the Peruvian Andes to work in um, 1998 and in 1993 we went together to do the, a similar project in the mountains of Bolivia. And on that, in that, in that trip, Reiner died suddenly of a, of a hemorrhagic stroke. And um, young, fit, 69. Um, and in the aftermath of that, I found out that he came from actually a very wealthy family that had been in banking literally for centuries. And he left $50 million with no real earmark on it other than to say, my brother's my executor. Well, Henry Arnhold, his brother, uh, said, we want, to, we want to carry on his work in some meaningful way, so let's start a foundation to do so. And he had taught at this hospital in Kampala, Uganda, a very famous hospital called Mulago. And so... The foundation is named the Mulago Foundation in commemoration of that. And uh, we just started trying to figure out how best to create a legacy for him with that money. And when was this about? When did you actually start the foundation? Um, he died in 93, and we really kind of got work rolling in 95. And you were still practicing medicine here on a sort of catch his cans? No, mostly full time. In, well, equivalent in California, <laughs> yeah. right. right? Doing long shifts in remote uh, rural yeah. emergency rooms around the state, right? Yeah, I did yeah. rural rural emergency medicine. I mean, it goes. I'd go up to Southern Humboldt County or over in the Eastern Sierra and stay there for a, a week, being on call the whole time. Right. So, 
I'm just wondering about the analogy that uh, of I mean medicine. I mean you've we've talked before about so medicine is a basically intended to be a one-on-one -on -one experience about acute care about saving lives uh, but on the other hand you were looking at the bigger pictures uh, with your international work and uh, it seems that the focus then that you've I mean can you say something about how it's it's a public health kind of approach an epidemiological approach that you've really looked at how do you change things on a village or community or regional level well, you know, so much of, uh, it's interesting, so much of good medicine is about helping people change their behavior. And you get exactly zero training in medical school about how to change behavior. And we have this mutual friend who probably a lot of you commonly will know, Mark Reneker, and he was my other big mentor in medical school. And Mark knew and was really very interested in behavior change and specifically helping people change their behavior both to improve their health directly but to get more out of the medical system. And so I got really interested in behavior while I was in medical school and it kind of is one of the things that shifted me off of a sort of doctors without borders life trajectory to more of the work I'm doing now. But we, it realized that if you think about eventual health as the impact, then changing people's behavior in a way that creates that impact in their lives. That's really what it was about. And then it's almost a natural shift to start thinking about, well, once you're trying to change behavior, how can you benefit a lot of people? Well, it's changing the behavior of a lot of people. And then that gets really interesting. And you uh, reflected that after that first trip to Southeast Asia as a college student, you came back feeling a little bit uh, embarrassed about who's this uh, kid from California telling locals how to brush their teeth <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So um, that's been one of the critiques is often a top-down or culturally inappropriate approach uh, is too often made. And so it seems to me that informs your work a lot in trying to make sure that the people are very closely, the people that you are funding and training are working very closely with the, the population locally. Well, so a lot of really good work comes from bottom up, from the community level. And then there's a lot of work that comes from the top down, things like the market and governments. And sometimes you can do a really effective top down thing with you can really talk a government into providing a high quality service for, for poor people. They can accomplish a great deal. A lot of what we do is looking at how can you figure out how to create change at a local level, but scale it up? It's sort of like um, we learn how to do what we do in boutiques, but then we figure out how to turn them into Walmart. <laughs> and so you do talk a lot about, or you focus on scalability. And so yeah. give an example of how that works. What would, what would be a successful example of a project that has gone to scale so in your... Scalability means if you have an idea and you initially do it, and you can show that by doing it, it creates impact, you want to know, could somebody do it at really large scale? And so that means, of course, that it has to have real impact. If it didn't make people healthier or wealthier or better educated, why bother? But if it did, then you're looking at, well, what did it cost to get there? If it's too expensive, obviously, 
it's not going to scale up because you don't have infinite amounts of money usually. And then you look at how, how uh, complicated is it to do. If it's got too many moving parts or it depends on only being in one little subculture in the Amazon or if it's designed around just one person, it's not what we call replicable. So cheap enough, simple enough, and then eventually somebody's going to have to do it at scale. So it may be that you figure out uh, a model, a solution, that can be done by governments, and so you get that all developed such that you can successfully hand it off to governments. That works sometimes. Sometimes you can actually create a successful business that makes real social impact. It makes people healthier or wealthier or better educated. And you could end up a bunch of businesses copying yours and having real impact. And sometimes you get other nonprofits to see that you've got a great model and they imitate it. But either way, you've got to figure out, if I've got a cool idea and I've learned how to do it, who's going to really do it at scale? And we think about scale very arbitrarily, just the sort of thought experiment. I talk to somebody and say, you've got a cool idea. How would you get it to a million people? And when they look like a deer in the headlights, I think, oh, that's maybe we, maybe we need to uh, wait before we have that conversation. So can you give us an example of something that you've been involved with that you think was a great success in this way? Well, I can give you uh, several examples of things I think are going to be great successes. These meaning they take a long time. They take they can take a long time. What we fund for is a curve of impact over time that looks like this. We don't want a straight line. We don't want, we don't want a slow incremental growth. We want something that gathers momentum and then just takes off. Like a lot of a lot of companies, you know, you could think of easily have taken off. You can imagine the curve for Apple. For example, there's not that many things in the do-gooder world that I want to work in, I do work in, that have done this. And this is what we're looking for. And what's emerged that seems to deliver that, or be, have the potential to deliver that, is what we call the social entrepreneur world. And all a social entrepreneur really is, is somebody who wants to solve a problem with a solution and take it like this. That's a social entrepreneur. So, for example, we have three right here who've come over from Pacific House. So, Sharath has an edu a, a, um, educational organization called STIR in India. And what they're doing is taking a huge public school system that actually does a pretty good job of getting kids in school and does a pretty terrible job of actually uh, making them literate. And so he is going through schools and finding out who are the teachers who are actually motivated but often not empowered to do a great job and getting them networked and delivering good ideas and best practices through them in a way that spreads through the whole school system. So developing something at a small scale as if you were an R&D lab and then blowing it up when it works. And Jess, uh, Jessica is a resident actually right now in OBGYN at UCSF, but she and her husband created an organization called MUSO in the slums of Bamako in Mali where they said, you know, the, the, the thing that's killing kids is they're simply not getting 
to care fast enough. So they created a system where everybody in the community is, is enlisted in looking for six kids. And when they find one, there's a healthcare worker they actually know well who's making regular rounds. And that healthcare worker's responsibility, once they're alerted, is making sure they get to the clinic. And what they've done at the clinic is make sure that costs have dropped low enough so that doesn't provide a barrier that prevents care. So they've brought all the elements together to get a rapid response team in place for very poor people. They actually cut the uh, child mortality rate in their first pilot by 90%. Astonishing. And then Mark has an organization just called Possible. (laughs) And what they're doing is in Nepal, there are hospitals, government hospitals in these far far, uh, flung districts where there are the people to work in them and the facilities for, for them to work in, and the medicines and other supplies more or less available, but the management is so bad that all those pieces don't actually come together in a way that delivers health care for people. So Mark is looking at a way to create private outsourcing management. So you create a management company that's really good at managing to take advantage of the commitment the government's made to take good care of people that they aren't really ready to deliver on. Could you work in our country maybe too? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is interesting. A lot of our fellow solutions people are looking at um, ways to bring them back. Like uh, one of our other fellows has an organization called Nura. And what Nura is learning how to do is make poor families into patient advocates. Mm -hmm. So... In a, in a crazy public hospital in Mysore, India, how do you help a family who's sitting by the bedside know how to make sure that the sputum sample got done to check for TB and that it got to the lab? And if it got to the lab, did anybody do anything with it? And if they got a result, did they get it back to the doctor? They got it to the doctor, did the doctor write a prescription? If he wrote a prescription, did somebody fill it? If they filled it, does the patient and their family know how to take it? And so you start pulling all the elements. This is just like what you've seen in, in clinical advocacy models here in the U.S. But how do you really empower poor people to be great advocates? And then how do you teach them to do the care, literally often at the bedside, say the wound care that nobody's doing, and then how to do it well at home and how to make sure they take their meds at home. So how do you get a family going in the hospital to really deliver good health care alongside with the providers and then continue doing it at home? Tell me a little bit about how you find these fantastic people. How do you, you know, you, you're traveling? It's mostly through other fantastic people. <laughs> yeah. So our, we've, we don't take applications. We function entirely through a network that's been slowly accruing over 15 years. But the best, um, the best scouts are the graduates of our own program because they're, they're off in uh, Bangalore with their eyes open. They're off in Nairobi with their eyes open. They're off in Bamako. They're off in Kathmandu with their eyes open as to who other, who's doing cool work that is likely to scale up. Because what, what we need is a, a great idea, and we need great operators to do them. We can't have a great idea without a great person or team most of the time. 
And a great team without a great idea is wasted, just, is, uh, just as unlikely to be successful. So we need them both, and that was one of the lessons we learned. So when your grapevine alerts you to somebody who's a possible great candidate, you tend to go and visit? Uh, um, and if we can, a lot of times, the nice thing about being in San Francisco is people go through there a lot. And there are certain conferences that we go to where people tend to aggregate. And if we're in a city like Nairobi, where there's a million things going on, we'll tend to meet with a couple of new, um, new people. You know, I, uh, how did we meet? How did we meet? <laughs> how did we meet? There you go. <laughs> okay, that's a big. Pretty much all within a five-block radius. Of our <laughs> However, Kevin is. I, you know, I don't think I know any anybody else, or even many bucks, who has traveled more than he has through the years. He's been everywhere. Um, and so you, you you have gone to actually look at and visit oh, in we, the field a lot to see what's going no, on. We, and we we get to everybody's site at one point. So we have a so our fellows program is where we find the great talent and do everything we can to help them refine their idea and build an organization to deliver it. But what we're especially lucky there's a bunch of fellows programs. A lot of them really good, but we're especially lucky because we can then fund them over time. And so we develop a relationship with them as fellows, a close one. And then we can move them into the funding portfolio as they're ready. And so either as fellows or when they're in the portfolio, we, we get out to see everybody, usually multiple times. So healthcare and education and what other kind of sectors? I mean, you've done, you've done you've, I know you funded some clean water type projects. Um, what else is in the kind of portfolio? So it's really the overarching theme is the basic needs of the very poor. So one reason poor people are poor is because they don't have any money. <laughs> so it sounds simple, but it's actually kind of profound when you think about it. We like to talk about poverty as having all these root causes, and yeah, it does, but ultimately people are poor in the modern world because they don't have any money. And so we like helping poor people make money. Um, another basic need of the very poor is health care. So how do you get decent health care to the poor? And we include sanitation and water in that. And then education. There's no real future for people in the modern world unless they're educated. So how can we get at least basic education to poor families? And then increasingly, energy is uh, a basic need of the very poor. How do you get light to them and how do you get cook stoves that won't actually kill them since indoor air pollution is the, uh, one of the biggest causes of sickness and death in the world. Um, and then also conservation where it really intersects with poverty, where the conservation its effort itself can really benefit poor people. So that's what we do. We stick to we stick to that. We're very clear on what we focus, what we fund. So you and I did a little article last year in the the San Francisco Medical Journal called Hippocratic Philanthropy, drawing on the medical background to say you know one of the dictums of medicine is first do no harm, and uh, back to the kind of critiques that have come up about uh, this kind of work is that a lot of them have actually done harm to the nations, the areas, the people that they are funding. How does, how does that happen, and, and what's, your, what's your take on that? 
I mean, one of the example the example we talk about and many have has been the earthquake in Haiti, for example, three you know a few years ago. So, but it predates that quite a bit. This this kind of problem. Well, there's there's kind of three sorts of harm I think you can do in our particular world, and one is a more abstract kind of harm around the opportunity cost of money that's wasted. So one can imagine there's a, there's a, there's only so much money to do good in the world, and every time you do something stupid with that money, you waste the opportunity to have benefited somebody, and in effect you're doing harm, and you're also uh, you're also doing more uh, less to create a norm of impact. In other words, if you spend money stupidly, and if we tolerate people spending money stupidly, we waste the chance to, ch to change the whole sector so we're all spending money more intelligently. So that's kind of abstract, but another one is where you do things with people that just don't work, and you don't, you don't do them saying, you know, you're, you're working with me in an experiment, we're trying to benefit everybody, but you know we're doing an experiment together. We, essentially, you know you're a research subject and you buy it, that's okay, you're helping out. But a lot of times we try stuff on people, on the poor, and we don't tell them they're part of an experiment, or we even try to do it at a big scale when we don't really know it works. And they're investing their time, sometimes they even invest their money, sometimes they, they just invest their effort, mm -hmm. and they don't get anything back for that, and they're already living on the margin. So that can really do harm. And then the third way is when we actually do have... Uh, interventions that we try to do that leave people worse off. And the one that I, I like to talk about is microfinance. Everybody's heard of these little loans that we give people. And what happened with those loans is that it, people turned out they paid them back. If you've all heard of Grameen Bank in Bangladesh and Mohammed Yunus doing that, it turned out that people paid them back because of group pressure at an astonishingly high rate. 99% in many cases. And so people thought that if they paid them back, they must be doing well off of them. Well, that turned out to be a dangerous assumption because when they really looked at what happened to family wealth as a result, what they found out is that 25% of people are, are considerably wealthier. In other words, they may be even moving into the middle class out of poverty. And about 50% had better cash flow and had more on hand when family got, family got sick. They could get through shocks, so we call cushion, cushion shocks for them. The sticker was that it turned out that 25% of people who participated in microfinance loans were poor at the end. And it's because... The cost of making all these small transactions means that the interest rate has to be pretty high. So the average interest rate is over 30% per year, which compared to the traditional lenders where it can be 20% per month looks pretty good, but it's still pretty expensive money. If you don't have a smart thing to do with that money, you can end up poor afterward. So without meaning to, but simply because they didn't measure and pay attention, this industry that could, this industry actually inadvertently ended up doing a considerable amount of harm um, while everybody's intentions were only good. 
I have to ask you about, you know, we live in tech, techie ground zero as well, so we hear now about uh, the idea of the technological sector saying, for example, if we can get everybody in the developing world online, that'll be great. And there was one famous or infamous project a few years ago that I know you're a big fan of too, which is called One Laptop, One Child, which was, you know, get a laptop to everybody and things will fix themselves. I mean, what do you think about this kind of approach that, that you know, the new tech world is going to um, save the world, as it were? Well, we have, we have four, when faced with a new technology that, that purports to help people, we have four questions we like to ask. And the first is, is it needed? So we like to assign each thing a mission, like what's this thing supposed to do? So if it's a new, um, if it's a new uh, jaundice treatment unit for new newborn babies who have jaundice, we know exactly what that's supposed to do. It's supposed to um, resolve jaundice and prevent the brain damage and other things that come from, dam from jaundice. We know exactly what it's supposed to do, so that sounds good. And then the second question is, does it work? If you use it as it's designed, does it really work? So if you use this, so the problem with the one laptop per, ch per child was that first question, we couldn't figure out what it was for. <laughs> is it really needed? Do kids in the, in the poor world really need a laptop? We didn't hear anybody making the case for why they needed that when the teacher doesn't show up, when they don't have textbooks, when they basically don't know how to read yet. Is it make sense to give them a laptop? And then the does it work? Well, you don't even know what does it work means when you don't know the question, is it needed? You're listening to a conversation with Kevin Starr, MD, and Steve Heilig. So we, we look for, is it needed? Does it really work if it's used as you intended to? But the next question is, out in the real world, do people really use it as you thought they would? Or do they break it? Do they, um, does dust get in it? Do they, um, instead of it being, instead of a mosquito net being something to protect from mosquitoes, does it end up as a fishing net? Um, and then the last question is, will it get to them? If they... If it is needed and it works and they use it right, will it get to them? And that's the hardest one of all because we have, in this setting, the market works really well to create all these distribution channels to get all kinds of useless products out to all of you. Uh, in, in the world where we these guys work, um, it's often there's, there's no distribution channels to even get to them. So it doesn't matter if you've got the greatest water filter in the world if you can't get it to the people drinking the dirtiest water. Those are often the people it's most expensive and most difficult to get that to. So we think about who's the impact jackpot? Who are the people who need something most? And how do you get it to them first? If you can't get it to them, we're not that interested in it. So the word that you use probably in this context more than anything is impact. Um, and your perspective is bringing a more of a business model to these kind of projects where you're actually measuring what you do. Can you talk about how do you, I mean, you have a whole algorithm and a whole uh, system of measuring, designing, and then measuring impact uh, that you train fellows in and so forth. Can you kind of 
describe what that is and how that's different from the usual way of doing things? Yeah. Um, well, first off, the, he mentioned business models. And so I went to UC Santa Cruz where business, money, capitalism were the root of all evil. So I came out of there thinking shouldn't be involved in business in any way, shape, or form. And then I went to medical school at UCSF, and people were uh, understandably very suspicious of big business in medicine, big pharma, HMOs. So I came out even more hostile business. And then when I got deep into the world of getting stuff done and behalf of the poor, I learned that there's these, this whole world of people who'd been learning how to get shit done for a long time, and they were called business people. <laughs> and so suddenly the world of business had a great deal to teach me, and I could see it in a completely different way. And in fact, I work for a bunch of very smart bankers. And so making that shift allowed me to think of what we do, what these guys do, is to have businesses that deliver impact instead of profit, while losing the least amount of money possible. So we do take it. We think every organization should be run as if it's a business where you put money in and you get impact out instead of profit. If you do get profit out, more is the better. What I would like is for one of our fellows someday to become a billionaire off a model that really had tremendous impact for the poor. So the other, you were asking about impact. So we think... We think it's really important to measure impact because no business that didn't measure profit would ever get more profitable. They're constantly trying to get more profitable. And they couldn't do that if they didn't measure their profit. They wouldn't know what to tune up, what product to change. They wouldn't know anything. And so for us, organizations that don't measure their impact are like a business that doesn't keep the books. They can't get any better at what they do. And so we try to make it as simple as possible. And we're investors in impact. And we feel like if we don't invest our money smart for impact, we're actually doing harm. We're actually doing a disservice. Obviously, not everything we do is going to work. And we have to take some risks. But by and large, we better be smart about it. Um, so... Together with these guys, we try to take the approach that to measure your impact well, you need to know what the hell you're setting out to do. And we, we notoriously require people to formulate a mission statement in eight words or less. You've all read mission statements. You've probably all been on committees to try to come up with them. We want it in eight words or less that says the target population, the people you're trying to help, the outcome, what you hope to see happen, and a verb that just ties the two together. So, get Indian kids educated, save kids' lives in uh, Mali, save people's lives, make people healthy in Nepal, rural Nepal. All of them in eight words or less. Now I know exactly what these guys are going to do. And then we often tell people, if there could be one thing that you could measure to best know that, what would it be? And that's really interesting. So it's literacy rates, it's child mortality rates, it's different indices of, of health and well-being. So now that we know what to measure, well, how do you actually measure it? Do you do some big, huge study? Is there some more simple way you can do it? 
can you, can you make it part of your business to constantly be measuring impact? What's the system? Are you getting a big enough sample size? Are you getting a good baseline? And then, often fairly simple stuff, but very, very important. And then finally, then this is one that everybody, uh, people often short, uh, shortcut, and when I see a, a, a nonprofit, especially say, this is our result, I say, what would have happened without you? Because the difference, your impact is actually what happened with you minus what would have happened anyway without you. And so that, you know, that, that the notion of attribution, what the economists call the counterfactual, what would have happened without you, we try to get everybody to understand that. Because it doesn't do you or anybody else any good to claim impact that isn't really yours. You can't tune yourself off of impact that isn't really yours. So how is this approach measuring much more impact and so forth? What's the reception in the broader kind of uh, philanthropic world, particularly in the sectors that you uh, uh, work in? Uh, Kevin blogs on, he's got a blog sometime on the Stanford Social Network, which is the, one of the philanthropic uh, sites, and it really, and uh, you know, he writes pieces on there that are really often very critical of the way things are done. I mean, he did a great one not so long ago about, let's banish all the award ceremonies in the philanthropic world, they're a waste of time. <laughs> and the, the feedback comes in strong from people who have other opinions on these things. But there's big world out there, there's Gates Foundation, and you know, to use them and all these, um, do they find your critiques and your examples helpful or threatening or, you know, or do you, you... Well, when there's a critique, it's often from really learning something from somebody doing it right. And the Gates Foundation is a good example. They spend... God, how much did they spend a year, do you think? Hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, a lot. Very least. <laughs> so, but they are, they're really into measuring impact, and it's been a stuttering and stumbling effort because it's really, it's actually really hard to do, but they've been, they've really shifted the field on something um, that really needed, it needed some evangelizing. But I find when I, um, when I speak to well-meaning funders, and I say, you know, do you really want to know what impact your money's having? When you put it that way, most people really do, but they just think it's impossible because they've never really heard of ways to do it. So when you combine the notion of, do you really want value for your philanthropic buck, and by the way, it's possible to do, and by the way, we have a whole portfolio of organizations that are doing it, <laughs> that... That conversation goes differently than you. You ought to measure impact. Or um, where are the funders who measure impact? I can't find them. Do you know of a... I mean, there are sites or rankings for uh, various charities, international and otherwise, that try to you know, give star, five-star ratings and all that. Do you put any weight behind those? Do you think those... Well, the most famous one is Charity Navigator. And the question they can best answer is, did they steal the money? <laughs> And they can answer, did they actually manage the books well, and do they know where the money went, and are they run reasonably efficiency? They have been promising for years to start talking about results, because a lot of us pushed them to say, you know, it's great. Do you remember the uh, three cups of tea guy? <laughs> you know, basically it turned out that a lot of what he said was going on wasn't there, and I don't even think he was lying, I think he just didn't know. 
So way out in Pakistan, I actually saw the work in Pakistan in 2000, and his guys in the in the field were telling me this this guy we don't even know where he is half the time. He's off grandstanding giving speeches. We don't know when the money is coming in. So there wasn't there was all kinds of problems way out in the field. Right before the scandal broke, they got a four star Charity Navigator rating, which was the top rating. So it doesn't say, one, they miss a lot, but more importantly, two, they didn't even know how to measure impact, and they, they keep promising to do so. They're actually making an effort to do so, but it turns out if you don't start off with your organization measuring impact, trying to retrofit that is really hard. So they're having a real problem bringing that feature into their audits. How about the large uh, traditional uh, organizations, WHO and, and these kind of groups that are the biggest really and have been doing this around the world in a long time? Do you, do you have dialogue with them? Do you, do you feel uh, that they are changing over time too? I mean, I can just say, I mean, I started out, I wanted to be Kevin before Kevin, I'm a little bit older, so I, my, I was in epidemiology. I, went, I, I thought I was going to be in international health. I worked a little briefly in Africa and in Asia, and I came out of that thinking this is a, uh, a recipe for frustration. I, I, I got to change my career. You know, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, it's, and because of some of the things that you're talking about now, but I didn't know it. I mean, this stuff isn't working. It looks like a mess. I see corruption. I see careerists. Uh, in the international health world, we just travel around for a good time, and um, and it, I, I got out of it. Of course, I landed in San Francisco at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, so it was much worse in a way, but I, um, some of those groups, and it was WHO, was the first one I was working with, and I saw a huge bureaucracy, really, that didn't seem to be know what was going on in the field, or maybe even care, but the money was getting out there one way or another. Is that changing in your in your view, in the the big for the biggest groups, it's funny. I don't. I've got. I I um. I believe so strongly in these guys and the kind of the way that they uh, they've changed the landscape around creating impact in the world that I pay not that much attention to the the um, the big boys. But uh, the head of care the other day called me and to ask, uh, to talk about, they want to do an innovation lab where they come up with great solutions. And I said, you know what? We already have one. Why don't you just take the stuff they develop and scale it big? You're good at delivering stuff that's big. You know, Walmart shouldn't be designing toys. They should just be finding the best toys and selling them to a zillion people. So, that was an interesting conversation, but I think as everybody gets more interested in what's really happening and there's more transparency, even the big organizations are stepping up and taking notice. And they're well-intentioned, too. I feel a real responsibility from the funder in because we're like the investors in, say, Silicon Valley. If we're not looking for good companies and defunding the bad companies then there's not a market that produces your iPhone 6. And so we need the iPhone 6s of the impact world. And so if we as funders aren't smart about it and we don't demand knowing about impact, the whole field goes to hell. We never get a sil Silicon Valley. But I think the, the big boys are, you know, they're doing their best too. And the, the, uh, a good bureaucracy delivers great stuff at scale. 
So bureaucracy itself, you have to have bureaucracy to do anything at a certain size. But you can have a good, efficient one, or you can have the one that gives bureaucracy a bad name. Well, so in that regard, what happened in Haiti, where it, it, it turned, you know, it's been called a republic of NGOs uh, with no coordination and just all this stuff going on without a, from most accounts, a very positive impact in terms of the amount of resources sent there in the last few years? Well, mostly there were no institutions there. And so it did become a republic of NGOs because the government was so dysfunctional before something terrible happened to make it just that less functional. So you did have a bunch of people pouring in. And what, what, what I always notice in an organization, a thing that organizations do that I don't like is they'll take a tragedy and then send you an appeal based on that tragedy when they often don't even have that much to do with the response to it. And a lot of our organizations, unfortunately, maybe well-meaning, maybe not, maybe it's cynical, but they will raise money off of, a great deal of money off tragedy, and it really pours money into the coffers, and then they have to go spend it. So somebody who isn't that good at working in Haiti doesn't actually have a proven solution, managed to raise a bunch of money off the crisis, goes to Haiti, and they're, even if they have good intentions, they're out of their depth, and they don't, didn't have that good idea in the first place, and there's no grounding institutions to really work with, and so, yeah, they swirl around trying to get something done and spending money and poaching employees from each other and, and saying, that's not your quarry, that's our rock quarry. I mean, really weird stuff happened. But it was really a bunch of well-meaning people and too much money descending on a place without any institutions. And what we've learned the hard way is it's about institutions, both market institutions, government institutions, civic institutions. If you don't have good institution, the country goes to hell no matter how much money you pour into it. One of the most uh, visible or famous people in this field is Paul Farmer, Dr. Paul Farmer, who's been in Haiti a long time. There's been books about him, a movie, and so forth. And, and he wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs, one of the leading journals just last year, about just this, saying very much that you need to fund both public and private, in a sense. You need to establish that kind of infrastructure. But what do you, do you fear about, I mean, the problem, or the critique has always been that the, the money, the resources don't get there, that they are uh, too often corrupt. Is that, have you seen that, in a sense, in a problem in, out in the field? Well, corruption is always a problem, and, and uh, you know, the, it's, in the United States, the corruption is mostly legal, and then where we work, it's mostly illegal. But it's, it's um, yeah, the, what, what, what some cool new technologies are allowing is for uh, resources to bypass corruption. So there is a system in, in um, Kenya known as M-Pesa, which allows you to transfer money by mobile phone. And it's with the largest uh, mobile phone provider, and everybody uses it, everybody. And so what it means is that um, I, Steve could be living in remote Kenya, and I can send him money that nobody else between, that goes directly between him and me. 
And there's an organization that is experimenting with what's called unconditional cash transfers. And what they're saying is we're always trying to give stuff to poor people. Let's just give them some money and they can decide what they need. And so you can imagine that just sending money down the chain to people would have been unthinkable a few years ago. But nowadays, an organization can just... These guys go into a community at a very low cost. They identify the poorest people in the community. They hand them a mobile phone, and they say, we're setting you up with a bank account. They go back. They wire the money. No, no official ever touches it. And those people take their phone to a kiosk and uh, trade a phone code for money. What's so, the name of that company that you... Uh, the ones that do it... What's the name of the guys doing unconditional... Give directly. Really interesting. They're called give directly, one word, you know how everybody likes to cram two words together. And, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So there are technologies that are starting to allow that, but, but a real healthy public private partnership also can be a good way. So that sounds like a, a jargon term. What it just means is, like uh, with, with Mark, with this organization, possible, it's a private company helping the government do its own job better. So it's a public-private partnership. We hope that someday Mark can make a lot of money doing this. <laughs> really, because if it could, turns out you could successfully market great management of, of public health hospitals all over the world, that would be a fantastic thing. If somebody got rich off it, it would mean more people were likely to imitate it. That would be a good thing. So the old cliche is uh, give somebody a fish and they eat for a day, teach them to fish and they eat for a lifetime. Are you concerned about when you're funding both the organizations that you fund and then the actual beneficiaries in the field about the issue of dependency? How do you uh, make yourself obsolete in the field? Really, Is that part of your criteria and your, your, your aim in these things? We think of, you know, going back to that theme of behavior, we think of things in terms of lasting behavior. So you can imagine that you give a man to, teach a man to fish, and well, if he has the nets and the poles and the bait and all the other stuff, yeah, he can fish. Uh, but he has to have all that other stuff. And so... But if you, if you give a man, if he can buy the gear he needs to fish and he knows where to fish and he can catch fish on his own and that fishing feeds his family or gives him a livelihood, well, he'll keep fishing. But a lot of times what we do is we pay people to do stuff, to provide services, and then we go away. And as soon as we go away and stop paying, they stop doing. So what we look at when we say somebody has a solution, we say, who has to do what differently and how are you going to make sure they keep doing it? Does the behavior change last? And often taking that analysis shows that, no, you're going to have a brief effect and then it's going to stop. Or maybe you go into a community and you teach a, a bunch of moms learn how to save their kids' lives in a way that you create a critical mass, that you change the culture norms completely, and it would be absurd not to give your kid more liquid when they have diarrhea. Everybody knows that. Everybody does it. Ten years ago, nobody knew it. So we're interested in saying, how do you change behavior in a lasting way? We don't think about dependence, maybe, in the same way 
uh, that, that I, maybe I used to, or sustainability. I hear sustainability a lot. I don't care about sustainability. I don't even know what it means. All I care about is, does the behavior that you wanted to see happen continue? Did teachers do a better job of teaching? Did community health workers do a better job of delivering their services? Did hospitals get better service? So I want to know that. And if you can convince me that it'll keep happening, that is sustainable. That means that behavior happened and it lasts. Please. But you're using a very interesting word now that you haven't used before, I don't think, which is community. Yeah. And that feels really essential that this is a small community of people who are invested in the concept, whatever it might be, rather than one individual or two individuals. So that carries the weight forward. That's a that's such a it's such a good point, but sometimes I don't even know what community means. And so when I say community, usually I mean a group of people whose lives are tied together in some fundamental way. Some of the things we do are aimed at entrepreneurial individuals, and it has nothing to do with community whatsoever. Most things do need to address this group of people whose lives are so are so connected. But sometimes it's doing a great job of a service that the government's supposed to do. So a lot of people will say, and I don't think clearly you're not one of them with that agenda, is that everything has to be community, community, community. Well, one, I don't know what that really means. And two, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it really does. And it's all about what behavior you're trying to change and how. I actually, um, I wonder if you, it's not about dependence so much, but one of the organizations that I worked with when I did come back and still was kind of involved, uh, one of their, and they were in Nepal, Save a Foundation, a, uh, you know, a, a wonderful and strange organization that came out of kind of the 70s. It's a combination of hippies and epidemiologists and some were the same, you know, so that's where I fit in. And they, um, one of their aims was to render themselves obsolete in terms of no more people from here in the field, to train enough people there that they weren't needed and that, that they could just support. And the other thing that I thought was intelligent about it was they found a very discreet intervention, cataract surgery, that they could do and then leave and not leave, you know, have the people um, needing them further after that. And so I wonder, do you have a time limit or are you looking at things? Do you, do you go to in looking at some projects or people that you want to fund them forever? Or are you hoping that they will do their job and eventually phase out and go on to something else? Some places you need to be forever. Poor people, for example, if you want to make sure vaccines happen, you'll never make money on vaccines. You need to come back year. Somebody needs to come back year after year after year. We have a, a really amazing group called One Acre Fund that works with poor farmers, helping them know what to grow and learn how to grow it and have the inputs they need to grow it and have the credit they need to get those inputs and help them find buyers. We don't think they're ever going to be able to move away, but they get more and more efficient and eventually they are able to operate at no, uh, no subsidy cost. In other words, what they earn off the loans actually is enough to run the business so they can stay. So we don't care if somebody stays forever as long as they've got a way that they can stay forever and the com commitment to do so. So again, it's about what behavior are they trying to create and can they come in and change that behavior and leave? That's wonderful. But does there have to be a service? We call everything a behavior. Providing a service is a behavior. 
So is there something that they need to do that needs to continually be done? Somebody's got to do it. Either they have to figure out somebody to hand it over to or they got to keep doing it. And what we often care about with that is can they do it at a cost that they can really manage to take to scale? May I add something about the SEVA project in Nepal? Um, because a, a colleague of mine and friend was the physician, was the ophthalmologist who did most of the cataract surgery in the beginning years. And it was very interesting. Um, and what happened was people would come, they walked 200 miles mm -hmm. to, the, to the camp, to the tents that were set up somewhere on the mountains, and they would do the cataract surgery. And at, at the very beginning, there was only one ophthalmologist doing it, an American, my friend. And then he brought some other people, but he brought them from India and from different places in Nepal. So what happened was he taught these other people how to do this particular rapid cataract surgery. I'm not sure exactly you know, what the procedure was, but all these people could see for the first time. And the doctors who he trained are now still running clinics in India in various outposts and I think there's one still in Nepal, but most of them are in India now. The same physicians who were trained by this physician in Nepal. Right. So it was wonderful, but it doesn't, it doesn't exist now. It, it, and it's something that you were talking about. That it, it, it disappeared, except for these isolated mm. spots where people can be treated. Yeah, but imagine if Mark and this group possible are managing many different health facilities in Nepal yes. and that those we knew who those people should come and train and we knew that those people who came and trained were well managed, decently paid and would stay in the system increasingly we'd have something for all that fantastic effort and skill to drop into to create something yes. lasting and big what happened was all the all the physicians were not paid. They just did it. If they yeah. could afford to do it, so when Dick went, he could afford to take two months off and go situate himself somewhere and you know outside of Kathmandu and do this. And then the people who came from India were physicians who didn't need to get paid. And so this whole group of people were essentially volunteers doing this work. Well, you know, I know what you're saying, but where do we get? <laughs> Where do we get the rest of the volunteers? There was no money. Yeah. They paid for the supplies and they, they just did the work as volunteers. So it wasn't, a, um, it wasn't something that looked to establishing any kind of income or universal health care, actually. Yeah. I like it when people get paid. I think that's great. Yeah. One of the things, yeah, so... A lot of systems of community health workers in the world tried to use community volunteers, and often they were, did really great work for a year or two. Mm -hmm. But then why should they work for free? It's work. Mm -hmm. Even if there's community spirit, it's still work. So one of the reasons Jessica's community health workers are so effective, they get paid a decent amount of money. Mm -hmm. They get paid what they're, something at least of their value. You're listening to a conversation with Kevin Starr, MD, and Steve Heilig. So, I've known you a long time, and I've seen you, you know, in the travels around everywhere, basically. I mean, you've been on every continent, right? And, and all over the place. And when you come back, you often have different feelings. I can, I can remember um, 
at one point we were talking, and uh, you know, I'm always trying to get some kind of global statements out of you. You said, you know, things things are getting better in a lot of the world or all over the world. And then on another trip, more recently, you came back and you said, man, it's really bad out there. And I think some of this depends on where you were at any one time and what was going on. I think the latter, when you were negative, you just come from the Congo and so, mm. or something like that, you know. But in the, in the biggest sense, I'm just wondering, you know, you talked about a, a curve that goes like that. That's what population has done and will continue doing for some time now uh, globally. Um, and sustainability is not a good word, but, um, I'm just wondering if you think that in the big picture out there, developing world, I mean, is it is there room for a lot of optimism? Is it bleak? Are we looking at, uh, you know, we've got fisheries collapsing, we've got unsustainable agricultural systems, we've got the climate change, which is, you know, only beginning to rear its ugly head. Um, you know, how do you, or do you sustain a, uh, a feeling of, of optimism about all this work that you do? Oh, I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, almost every country that I work in is better than it used to be. Mm. Almost every single one. I came back a little discouraged from this uh, last trip uh, because Kenya, a country that I work in, that all kinds of great things are going on, it's kind of, it's going through a little crisis, you know, the... the uh, <laughs> You see from the, the mall bombing and then and the way the police were actually part of the looting afterward to somebody burning down their airport to Al-Shabaab massacring people to more violence on the street. And so it's, it's kind of going through a rough time right now. But Kenya overall, they got had an election without the that that those uh, the post-election violence they had a big contested election people weren't that happy about it but they nobody got killed they have an economy that's just booming and Nairobi is full of skyscrapers um, things are better hunger is down education is up democracy is actually improving but I came a little discouraged because they do seem to be losing some momentum and it's partly because of the same old politicians doing the same stuff but boy we know that story but almost everywhere is better, you know. Uh, <clears throat> in the middle of the coup and the whole uh, problem with um, Islamic fundamentalists in Mali, things in the capital continued to get better. And so every, almost every country that I go to is really better than it was. Liberia is better than the first time I was there. Even and they'll get they'll get through this horrible Ebola thing, and they'll. Can, they've got a great president. They've got, they've done Liberia. When you first started hearing about it, was in the middle of this just medieval level of conflict, except there were automatic weapons, and the whole country was just shot to pieces. And then they got this amazing woman president, elected democratically, and then she got reelected democratically. It's the most disarmed country I've ever seen. You don't see guns anywhere except in a few of the remaining UN peacekeepers. You don't see guns anywhere. And so almost every country I work in is better than it used to be. And it's kind of like we're in a race against uh, environmental destruction because they have so much to lose from climate change. But most of climate change is coming from the, the developed countries. So, well, and that's the huge spectrum. I mean, China and India, right? I mean, the the report just came out that our carbon, carbon. Well, yeah, I mean, we're already there. So they want to be like us, and the the carbon emissions are higher now than they've ever been. 
uh, it just came out, and the population projections are that we're going to get a lot more. So I just, I, I wonder, you know, I mean, it, it, my my perspective is how to, you know, or my question again is how do you sustain a sense that in the big picture, uh, you know, your work is very rewarding to you in this way. And you're going to places where you're seeing a lot of suffering too. Um, and I mean, you saw that in the emergency department, but on a broader scale. We did a talk here recently with a local writer named Ananda who just wrote a book about 10 years of traveling around, and I asked him this question because where he loves to go, his favorite place in the world is India. And I said, well, how do you deal with this, the amount of poverty and suffering you see there? And he would say something along, along the lines of what you already said in some ways is that, you know, the material suffering was huge, but those people, many of them seem to be happier than the people that he hung out with here in the United States. So I'm just wondering, I mean, you, you, you've seen so much and, and how you maintain this optimism that you have about it. Well, I maintain this optimism uh, because of evidence. In other words, the stuff that we're involved in, by and large, most of it seems to be working. There seems to be more uh, uh, resources for it all the time, and the places in which it happens seem to be getting better. So it's not a, it's not a Pollyanna kind of thing. And Happiness is so interesting. Happiness is so much of it is about what's happening in collections of people. So Nigeria is a fascinating country. It's the biggest country in Africa, 150 million people, one of the most corrupt countries on earth. It's got, um, it's got uh, those awful extremists in the north, and nothing works there except that it's one of the most entrepreneurial countries on earth. On the happiness surveys, they're off the charts. I don't know why. They don't know why. It's the weirdest thing. You ask people, and they're like, well, we don't know why we're much happier than we ought to be, but we are. <laughs> so happiness is a funny thing. People tend to be... I actually, um, with you or just in the journal, I, I wrote a piece some years ago about designing for happiness, and happiness is more about having prospects for things getting better in the future, and about coming up, not getting too far behind. In other words, keeping up with the Joneses, even if you're a slum dweller. The reason slum dwellers are often happy is because everybody's in the same boat. So they don't perceive of anybody getting ahead of them. They don't perceive of themselves, more importantly, as being left behind. And so those are two of the biggest determinants of happiness. So it means that happiness can happen in a lot of places we don't expect. I'd like to go back to... Uh, your discussion about impact and the Grameen Bank. I'm no fan of the Grameen Bank, but the way you presented it was that 25% of the people were doing worse mm -hmm. and the rest were getting by or doing well. And in terms of impact, what I was struck by was that you didn't ask the question or you didn't answer the question of was there some comparison between another community that didn't have oh, the excellent question. So what that what that comes from and thank you uh, was a bunch of what are called randomized control trials. A lot of you know what this term means. Randomized control trials done by economists finally to look at this question of are people wealthier. So they did have good control groups who didn't get microfinance who were very comparable people. And it's kind of a new thing in our field 
So people who are involved, like many of you are, in, in health know about the notion of randomized controlled trials, the kind that help figure out whether a given drug works better than another drug. We've only started to do it fairly recently in the social world. So now we're testing agricultural solutions with randomized controlled trials. We're testing financial solutions with randomized controlled trials. So one reason, these trials are expensive, and so that's really one reason they often don't happen in timely fashion is they're hard to do and they cost a lot just like they do in, in, uh, in medicine. Does that get your question? That's partial answer. The other part of the question was, you, you made this generalization about Grameen Bank, but that's only one. Oh, no. No, no, you're, I, I can't even say that it does apply necessarily to Grameen Bank. Thank you for that. What I'm, I was trying to use Grameen Bank and Muhammad Yunus as uh, just a, a, a ticker to figurehead uh, for it. As an example of microfinance. The truth is, these were not studies of those specific. It was, it was studies of the industry as a whole. So you have, how many fellows are here now? 16. And they're from all over? Like what countries are they from? We heard three of them here. Uh, you got Latin America you people? Or? You no, know, we don't. And partly because we're looking for uh, people working in the poorest countries. And, and Latin America has done an amazing job in the last decade of almost throughout the continent rising into um, almost the world lower middle class of countries. And so what we're finding is the poorest people are in isolated countries. Like we work in Burma, we work in Cambodia, we work in the poor parts of, of India, we work in Nepal, some of the poorest countries in Asia, and then a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And so how many have there been all together so far, fellows, about? Fellows? Oh, God. You've done it how many years now? Well, it's hard to count because it took us about five years to figure out what we were and what worked best in this, these, this whole uh, idea of social entrepreneurs and that those are the people who fit our program best, is people who are starting up an organization to develop and apply an idea. And we had the most to offer them, and that was the best fit. So that really, maybe we've been in business about eight years. Maybe we're getting up to 40 graduates by now. Mm -hmm. Did they stay in touch? Is there a network that oh, they worked in? And like a we fund about 70% of them. So funding people makes them stay in touch. <laughs> Did they stay in touch with each other? Do you have oh, like yeah. an annual No, they do. And we have a fund that if they want to propose a visit to another one's site, we'll pay for it. Mm -hmm. And we bring in... This year we had... A, we've had... We have a real focus on agriculture because two-thirds of the world's poorest people are farmers. And so we care a lot. Of, and the average farm size in Africa right now is an acre. Mm -hmm. And that's a family farm. That's not a little greenhouse that's a family farm and so we do a lot with smallholder agriculture in various ways we we fund things that actually help the farmers directly we help fund things that create businesses that buy from them we help fund things that we're funding uh, one of our fellows is doing something called farm shop to make sure that farmers get high quality impact products at low cost that aren't counterfeit <laughs> 
And so we brought them all together this year in an agriculture summit on the slopes of Mount Kenya. So it was 35 people from 14 organizations that we fund. We're probably going to do more convening. We're going to do a health one next year. Yeah, please. Uh, the New Yorker recently had an article about how uh, the woman, I think her name was Vadana Shiva. Yeah is controversial and yeah. the Green Revolution and Monsanto yeah. and questioning some yeah. of the, um, making her saintly and everything she's doing, wondering what you think about that in terms of poor people and the need for... The Green Revolution? Uh, all, well, you know, the whole thing, even GMOs, um, yeah. products that could help the... Um, yeah, so in, in that article about Vandana Shiva in the New Yorker, and I, I, it was a really good article, I'd suggest anybody reader who's interested in this stuff, they did give the example of golden rice, this rice where they did genetically modified rice that has vitamin A in it. These staple foods that people eat, white rice, um, cassava, maize, they're so low nutrition foods. And so vitamin A is absolutely essential to developing vision in children. And People have made calculations of how many kids are blind because of anti-GMO protests. I mean, it's just, they're just numbers. They, people, Vandana Shiva et al. stopped the production and distribution of golden rice. For you know, whatever reasons they did, they did. So there are a number of kids in the world who are blind as a result of that. Uh, I'm not a GMO expert. I'm not going to pretend to. I think Vandana Shiva has a serious problem with making stuff up. And I think that GMOs are something that need to be judged carefully and non-ideologically. Um, and that's pretty much it. And I'm in favor of anything that helps us use farmland better so we don't cut down rainforests. And I'm in favor of anything that helps poor people make money without doing harm and anything that makes children healthier without doing more harm. So do you have a comment on the Green Revolution overall in terms of... Yeah, I do. Um, the Green Revolution saved hundreds of millions of lives. And it taught a lot about the, the, um, how to do agriculture much more productively. And in truth, if we don't know how to squeeze more productivity out of an acre, we're going to cut down all the world's rainforest. We're going to convert the entire planet into farms. And so, but there were destructive aspects that people now understand. One Acre Fund, this organization that helps smallholder farmers, uses fertilizer. But what they found is you can actually microdose fertilizer in a way that saves the family's money you give the right fertilizer in the right time in tiny amounts in the right way to the plant, and you can boost yields with no fertilizer runoff, for example. And, and the actual, the fact that you're only using a little furniture, uh, fertilizer, furniture, um, and you're actually increasing growth means there's more roots in the soil, and eventually it means there's more biomass in the soil, and it's all about carbon, the amount of carbon in the soil. So if you can get carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, that makes the soil better. So there's a lot of the, the legacy, there's a lot of toxic legacies from the Green Revolution, but there's a lot of people learning how to make the, the learnings from the Green Revolution into something much more sustainable and doable. And it's usually, it's interesting to us how an economic win and an environmental win usually coincide. 
So how can you teach Big Egg about this good news? Um, I don't know what to do about Big Egg. <laughs> Uh, um, I think that once I, I've been surprised so we've had some big ag consultants talk to our smallholder farmer a lot of them are starting to take much better care of the land than they used to because that's their bread and butter and they start realizing that if the, the, um, the one thing the one good thing about big corporations doing agriculture is they have a longer time horizon so they're trying to plan how do we how does this land make us a ton of money 30 years from now? Well, that, that means you better take care of that land. So my understanding is they're thinking more and more about um, not losing topsoil, making topsoil better, understanding that monocropping, you know, only growing one crop makes you more likely to, it makes you more vulnerable to disease. So the thing, you know, the, there's two institutions I've learned you know, both to be wary of and have grudging respect for. One's the military, and one is uh, one is is um, corporate America or co the corporate world, because they often are non-ideological and they're super practical. And if something works for them, they'll do it. And if you can point out the win-wins, they're often your customer. It's kind of amazing. Then they have they have time horizons that are often longer. Than individuals or small, like the indigenous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On another, these kind of countries. I wonder. You mentioned mosquito nets. I mean, malaria is a huge problem all over the world. There's been some resurgence. I think you and I have both had it. Even um, DDT banned for toxic reasons. There's you know a lot of controversy about uh, the cost benefit of that in terms yeah. of uh, you know malaria's resurgence and so forth do you have any the take on that whole controversy well again the take is one I'm not an expert on the, the data and to make a good dis we are all we just think you, to make a decision you have to gather the best evidence possible and go for the most impact possible and I don't know really the evidence on DDT you know, the, the idea is that for whatever, for a number of, of of chemical reasons, it's the best anti-mosquito um, uh, pesticide there is, insecticide that there is. And the problem from Silent Spring was that it was being used wholesale because actually, in in good faith, people didn't know. It just seemed like, wow, this stuff works great. No more mosquitoes. That's how we got rid of a lot of the mosquitoes initially in, in places like Washington, D.C. that used to have a really high malaria rate. Um, so it worked great. Turns out it's pretty horrible stuff. And then we stopped making it, which is a really good thing, but, but a lot of what replaced it is pretty toxic. But then some studies came out showing that if you just sprayed a tiny amount of uh, above the doorways and above the windows in a house, or under the eaves of the house, really, it can have an extraordinary effect on mosquito rates without getting appreciably into the environment. And then a lot of us are thinking, wow, we better rethink this. But then you start thinking about, well, now you're getting DDT back into the market again. Mm -hmm. And are you going to be able to control it? But, you know, it's a really, if the mission is saving kids' lives, and you don't be ideological about it, but rather, um, rather evidence-based, and 
I actually use that that advisedly because I've got a lot of critiques of evidence-based medicine. But uh, but you just say, can we show that it's safe or not? If it isn't, we're not going to do it. If it is, maybe it's maybe it's worth doing. I'm wondering, not to put you on the spot, but Dr. Ted Shetler is here. He's thought a lot about a lot of these issues. If you have any questions or comments on what you've heard. Well, I, you know, I, I do have a background in medicine, but I also have a background in public environmental health. Right. Uh, so That's I, I, I sort of, <laughs> I, I sort of uh, resonated with your question about the community and your response. Um, because I think that there are examples. I'll give one example. Uh, in, North, in North Finland, years ago, they had the highest rate of cardiovascular mortality in the world. And uh, it was at about the time that the Framingham study was beginning to produce results that was informing us about what the risk factors for cardiovascular disease were. Um, and so they undertook a project to put that information to work in this north region of Finland and recognized very quickly that they could not do it through individual behavioral change alone. Hmm that it required community-based interventions that involved supermarkets, mm -hmm. schools, uh, uh, government institutions, uh, as well as public health agencies and so forth. So they really had to get a broad buy-in to address the, the known risk factors for cardiovascular disease to, to make the healthier choices, the, the default choices, instead mm -hmm. of trying to address it as an individual behavioral thing. And within 10 or 15 years, they've reduced cardiovascular mortality among men by 80%. But it was only through this sort of broad-based intervention. That's a very different setting from many of those that you're describing, in incredibly impoverished places where you're looking for the opportunities to, to change individual behavioral change. And I kind of wonder, I, as I've listened to this, whether, whether in some settings changing individual behavioral change and, and specific well-thought-out uh, institutions is the right thing to do in some places, whereas in other places you need a, a much more public health kind of intervention. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and what distinguishes those two? And I, I'm not sure, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I think a lot of what you've been describing, the countries you've been working in, are just so fundamentally different from North Finland, uh, uh, which was a, a well-developed area, with, which was wealthy and had all kinds of institutions built into it. So I, I'm still struggling with this question about community versus or community and yeah. individual stuff. Well, we have everybody, those three guys who are here have all done what we call a behavior map. And what we say is, in order to get from your mission to your impact, what behaviors have to change? Who has to do what differently? And sometimes that behavior map reveals that a lot of people have to do a lot of things differently and you need to take a community approach. Sometimes it's sort of like one person needs to do you know, one, just moms need to do something, seriously, or maybe just shopkeepers need to do something differently. But the, looking at that, who needs to do what differently often reveals to you 
whether a top-down solution might work, whether a community-based solution might happen to work, whether a business-based solution will work, whose behavior has to change. I think a lot about smoking and how much I worked as a doctor to try to get individuals to quit smoking. And um, while my uh, success rate was considerably better than zero, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, didn't seem commensurate with the effort that I spent on it. And then it, you look at what really cut down smoking, it was that what they tell me is that it, it, they made cigarettes a hell of a lot more expensive. Yeah. And then they made it harder and harder to get away with. You can't do it in the bar. You can't do it right outside the bar. In some places now, you just basically can't do it on the street. So these were top-down solutions, and they seem to have worked. Um, yes, please. Oh, sorry. The piece of that is also that it became socially unacceptable, just like drinking and driving, that whole... Yeah. You Normalize know, it. Nobody right. uses to think about it, and now it's like it's not acceptable. Yeah, and when you can when you can change a norm, that's usually community based. But community. So I think about I, I, there's a bar right near my office, and I just watch the smoking behavior around that bar. And what what happens is that you make enough people do a thing, if successfully, and it often becomes a norm that then helps carry the behavior forward. I just think about that picking up after your dog in San Francisco. You know, it used to be nobody did it, and everybody stepped in it. Everybody was unhappy, but nobody did anything about it. And then finally they made it a law. You had to pick up after your dog. And they enforced it for a while, and they made it... So we often think of... This is totally a digression, but it's really fun to think about. We, we, we look at a behavior, and we say... What are the conditions that would make that behavior possible? And what are the incentives that would make it desired? So can they do it? Will they do it? Can they do it? Will they do it? And the can they do it, then you take that a step further and you say, how could you make it easier to do that behavior than not do that behavior? So pretty soon you start seeing these clever dispensers in every park, yeah, dog bag. poop bags. And so that enforcement making people want to do it <laughs> or being in trouble if they didn't. And that condition of making it easy to get a bag, pretty soon that led to it being something everybody did. And now, if anybody doesn't pick up their dog, somebody might even run after them and tap them on the shoulder and give them a bag. So it's a norm. It's not cool not to do it anymore. It's not acceptable. Then you go to France and you're stepping in dog crap all the <laughs> How do you avoid the trap of not falling into kind of a reductionist approach to solving social problems? Like a lot of philanthropy in this country and this, you know, the American government tends to take very complex issues and say, here's that problem, we're going to solve that. So they took, you know, Arnie Duncan said, look at the education system, we're going to evaluate teachers and that's going to solve the problem of education when the problem is a lot more complex. And Sometimes it feels like we choose this intervention as a convenience and we feel like we can do something, but you're looking at the problem with the larger context. In some ways, smoking is a good example because lung cancer is caused by smoking, but a lot of other causes of cancers are, are by a lot of different variables and you can't control one of them and solve the problem. Yeah. So how do you avoid that? I mean, I've seen a lot of the groups that have fellows around the world that try to find this kind of like, I'm going to identify this problem and then tackle it, 
but it's one dot within a series of a hundred dots. Yeah. We say what, what we want our fellows to do is think about, think big about um, impact, but know you're probably not going to solve the problem because most problems are beyond the capacity of one organization to solve. But can we find the silver bullets? Yeah, we'd like to. But how do you avoid that trap that you're talking about of going, essentially going big with stuff that doesn't work? You measure, and then you measure again, and then you measure again. You measure at the R&D phase to see if the thing you're even proposing works, which often doesn't happen. You measure at the phase where you actually replicate it a few times in the real world, which means often that doesn't work. And then you keep measuring as you scale it into new areas. And I talked a little bit about the criteria we use for trying to figure out scalability. Between looking at it in those two ways, actually measuring impact sequentially and analyzing it for scalability in the first place, you can usually avoid that trap. And interestingly, I look for fellows with a solution. It doesn't, sometimes it, it deals with the root cause of the problem, sometimes it leaves those behind and finds a new way. We never quite know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Solution. At a real practical level, now that you've told us about Charity Navigator, how do people like like me decide who to donate to? I would take the approach that I do as a, a you know investing ten million dollars a year. Don't give money to anybody who doesn't measure their own impact because you can. And I don't think I think if none of us give, if we refuse to give to organizations that don't measure their impact. Overall, we're going to start putting the ones who don't have impact or refuse to measure it. My view is that organization isn't any good if they don't measure their own impact in some significant way because they don't know if they're any good. And so I, can't, I get really frustrated trying to figure out, just like you do, end of the year, I want, to, I, want to, I want to make sure I get my own personal philanthropy done I usually give it to my fellows because I don't know. I don't know who else works. It drives me crazy. But there are organizations out there that if you, even looking at their website, you can tell you they actually measure their impact. I could, I could know. And it might be that the impact you're looking for is they say they feed people at Thanksgiving. You want to see people fed at Thanksgiving. You look at that they document how many people they feed at Thanksgiving and at what cost. And you say, that sounds like a good deal. Here's my money. But I do want to know what they do and that they know what they do. Because you can't. You can't go in and figure out their impact. There's a really cool book called Happy Money that I just love. And it's about all the cutting-edge research about how to spend your money in the ways that make you happy. For example, spend it on experiences, not things. But one of the chapters is about help others. And one of the things that I... She actually interviewed me for the book because... The research is that if you actually know what good the money you give to help others does, you actually get more happiness from it. Please. An opportunity for your glory story. How do you measure your impact? What's your budget? How does it go to individual projects? And how do you measure your impact of your organization? Yeah. That's a really good question. So we're like an investor in Silicon Valley. How, does, uh, how do the venture capital firms on Sand Hill Road measure their success? Is, do they end up making a lot of money? 
Did they know exactly what their money did in terms of making a company go huge? They kind of do, but there's a lot of investment going to any given company. So we're closest to uh, we're closest to a venture capital firm in terms of how we operate. We look for startups and we fund them and we help them and we try to get them more money and we see who succeeds. So there's an there's uh, an analog there, but. We spend, we have about an $11 million a year budget. We spend about a million dollars to distribute $10 million. And we run the fellowship money, with, fellowship uh, program with that. Um, given the content we give, that's actually pretty lean. I don't think you can do a good job of philanthropy without spending at least 10% on trying to do that good job. Any more than a a venture firm can do good research and know who to give money to and do a good job of giving money without... But don't without most philanthropy or foundations spend significantly less than that? Um, 5% is the requirement, right? Well, some... No, that that's not spending. That's of your endowment. So just... Of the you know, endowment, okay. The, right. You've got an endowment. We have an endowment of about $270 million, and we have to spend 5% of it per year to maintain the tax-exempt status right. of that endowment. But the way that we measure our success is over time, do the organizations in our portfolio succeed and scale up impact? And so do we know exactly what role we played in that? No, but do we know that if we are getting a high percentage of hits and we are able to persuade other funders to fund them, we believe that in aggregate that shows whether we're good funders or not. So you stumbled into this role yeah. in this job. Do you see yourself? I mean, you, and you you seem to enjoy it. I mean, could you see yourself doing anything else, or is this? Are you somebody who's actually found their perfect niche that fits, even though you didn't plan it that way? Yeah, I'm doing this till I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you live a long time because it's great work, and I want to thank you very much for being here. Thank this has you. been great. Thank you all. You've been listening to a conversation with Kevin Starr, MD, and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.